1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. A to get 30, 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com
1: Thanks for your support on Patreon, Laurent Collard. Laurent was present during the Siege of Mantua and was fortunate to not die of plague. Well done, Larned. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 44 of The Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to episode 44 of the Thirty Years' War. Last time, France came under our microscope, Cardinal Richelieu's impressive rise was detailed, and his role in combating the Huguenots was placed in proper context. Amidst the redrawing of Europe outside of their borders, the French were crippled from acting with any consistent foreign policy goals in mind, thanks to the threat that the Huguenots posed. The constant flare ups of Huguenot insurrections, centred upon the city of La Rochelle, prevented King Louis Thirteenth from intervening in the war as much as he would have liked, while Louis' own mother and her faction further undermined the unity of French action. These difficulties, we discovered, even forced Richelieu to enter down the path of détente with Spain for a brief period in 1627, when the English did something they had not done in nearly a century and made war on France. The conflict was as wrong-headed as it was poorly planned. And if you remember back to earlier episodes on 17th century warfare, particularly those ones looking at sieges, you'll remember that the campaign we encounter here, the English effort to seize the island of Ray off the coast of La Rochelle, was, well, it was pretty disastrous all in all. With France distracted though and a foreign enemy on her soil in the form of the English, Spain took advantage of her rival's distraction by allying herself with the Duke of Savoy and forcibly intervening in the Mantuan succession dispute. What was more, Spain compelled Emperor Ferdinand II to send his assistance to this venture and Wallenstein actually redirected soldiers who were originally meant for the Netherlands to help with Mantua. All of these elements, the Huguenots, Mantua, Wallenstein, the Emperor, the French... Cardinal Richelieu will come under our microscope today. So, if you're ready for a very chunky episode, let's begin as I take you to late 1626. The Treaty of Paris had brought the Second Huguenot Rebellion to an end in spring 1626, but it had not removed that malignant threat which lurked in the background of the French state. It was impossible to imagine France ever being secure until it solved its Huguenot problem. But the problem was considerable, and what was worse, it was providing opportunities for foreign actors to weigh in on the debate. Spanish diplomacy was intelligent and devious, as Spanish Catholic figures promised help and sustenance to the French king in his quest to remove the heretics once and for all. Behind the scenes... Count Olivares in Madrid worked to stir up the passions of both sides in the hope that the old Catholic League of the French Wars of Religion in the later 16th century would resurface, granting Spain a pillar to stand on inside France as it had done during that conflict. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the English and Dutch chafed with their French neighbours as the Huguenots or French Protestants were squeezed into a tighter position. Ships meant for a lower shell had been blocked in Amsterdam, and Dutch sailors refused to take any action against their brethren in that troubled French city. The English were even more proactive. Benjamin de Rohan, one half of the de Rohan brothers that had led the Huguenots in the past, had fled to London after the Treaty of Paris was signed. When he was there, and among sympathetic Protestants, de Rohan worked on a campaign of a different kind the hearts and minds of the British people. Thanks in no small part to the rise in anti-Catholic feeling exacerbated by the recent marriage of King Charles I with the Catholic Henrietta Maria, the opportunistic Duke of Buckingham found that this was the ideal time to leverage public opinion and launch a concentrated strike at the French outside La Rochelle. Religious fervour rather than common or strategic sense motivated this latest foreign-policy initiative of King Charles. It was to prove every bit as disastrous as the previous efforts. It's important to emphasise that Richelieu by no means wished to have a break with the English and Dutch. The Dutch at least were too preoccupied with their Spanish war in the Netherlands to launch any ill-advised adventures against France who had been really their greatest ally up to this point, but Richelieu had heard many rumours about English intentions, none of which he liked. In England, it was said that Benjamin de Rohan was cheered in the streets and public opinion had reached such a fever pitch that King Charles refused to return the French ships captured by de Rohan to his brother-in-law's government. Rather than go against the grain, King Charles seemed to have been willing to ride the wave of public sentiment on the expectation the parliament would, and this time for sure, provide financial support for the war that they clamoured for. King Charles didn't meet with Rohan, suggesting that the king wanted to maintain some handle on his own policy, but he never saw fit to hold Buckingham back from the ludicrously optimistic enterprise he embarked upon in late June 1627, when the duke set sail for La Rochelle. Richelieu had expected the English to arrive outside of La Rochelle since February 1627, and he had considered the Treaty of Paris of the previous year only a temporary measure even then. With the co-leader of the Huguenots plotting and scheming among willing disciples, Richelieu could not imagine any course other than a resumption of hostilities, the third Huguenot rebellion in less than a decade. This time, though, the Huguenots would fight for their political privileges, they would not be granted new ones. The crown would seize La Rochelle and put an end to the machinations of that wretched fifth column once and for all, however long it took. Only when the bastion of the Huguenots was in the king's hands could Richelieu feel confident examining any additional policies. The calls for action had been many, from scheming allies as well as well-meaning papal nunzios and Habsburgs. They had urged Richelieu to destroy La Rochelle, with some believing the act would fail, thereby ruining the cardinal, or that it would succeed and empower Catholicism. In the past, Richelieu had simply not been strong enough to take a direct, independent foreign policy line of his own, and the king's forces hadn't been ready in any case. Patience, Richelieu had said to a papal nunzio in late 1625, following a request to crush the Huguenot centrepiece, I must go on disobliging the world for a while yet. The arrival of Buckingham's fleet off the coast of La Rochelle on the 10th of July 1627 certainly simplified matters. Richelieu was finished with disobliging the world. He was at last ready for this final showdown with the Huguenots. It was the historian Sir George Clarke who said that if the campaign at Ray succeeded, the world may never even have heard of Oliver Cromwell. By this he was inferring that the failure of Buckingham's force on this miserable sandy island during the summer months of sixteen twenty seven facilitated the weakening and then the collapse of King Charles's regime by the sixteen forties. Discerning such an automatic course of events in so minor a campaign might be a touch hyperbolic, but there's no denying that the Ray Campaign was a disaster of the first order for the English military reputation, for King Charles's regime and fatally for the Duke of Buckingham, who was assassinated shortly after returning home from the failure. It is difficult to imagine how the venture could have been successful though, or what kind of lasting impact an English victory would even have had on the besieged Huguenot city. Surely, if frustrated at La Rochelle in 1627-28, to in an alternative scenario where the English won, Richelieu would simply order the soldiers back to its walls within a few years. The expectation is well founded, but it does not take into consideration the potential impact on French public opinion such a failure would have had. Would King Louis, angered by his minister's failure, have sacked Richelieu? We can never know whether France would have reacted as violently to the failure of the Rey campaign as the English people did, but what we do know is that the enterprise was doomed from a very early stage. It was also quite unlike previous operations within the Thirty Years' War, as England acted virtually alone and without even the promise of aid from other powers. Buckingham had counted on the Dukes of Savoy and of Lorraine, but the former was soon to be very busy and the latter would never have acted against France without considerable help. To put this English adventure in perspective, you might remember that King James had failed to act independently for the entirety of the early phase of the Thirty Years' War, but here his son approved a venture which could only isolate his realm, and upon which all likelihood of success depended. King Charles was already attempting to pursue a lacklustre war with Spain, which Parliament had voiced approval for, only to refrain from financially supporting. What made this Stuart monarch believe that a war with France was the solution to his troubles, or that Parliament would behave any differently than it had done in the past, you might be wondering? Well, Charles seemed to have believed he had little choice, but he also placed far too much confidence in Buckingham, who was a childhood friend of his, and the same man who had been with him all throughout the Spanish marriage fiasco, if you can remember back that far. For the moment, Charles bought into the story that Buckingham was telling, but not for long. Richelieu did not try to understand King Charles' motives. It was only important for him to appreciate what this trend in English public opinion meant for France. The marriage between the French princess and the British king had been meant to set in motion negotiations for an Anglo-French alliance, but neither side proved willing to compromise in the required areas, and the religious issue remained a thorny one in Britain, especially considering the recent Anglo-Spanish negotiations that had preceded the outbreak of war between those two parties. Ironically, Buckingham had been the staunchest supporter of an alliance with France to be directed against Spain, but one historian has noted that Buckingham had become convinced of the absolute necessity of French assistance for the imminent war with Spain and the recovery of the Palatinate. It is also worth considering Buckingham's personal motive for orchestrating the war, that of revenge. Richelieu had advised his king against even allowing Buckingham back into the country to discuss an alliance a slight which the vain-glorious Buckingham took personally allegedly declaring in response Since I am refused admittance into France as an ambassador desirous of bringing peace I will force an entrance in spite of the French as the leader of an army bringing war Henri de Rohan a major benefactor of the English involvement or so it seemed commented acidly on Buckingham's personal interference in King Charles's foreign policy, saying This is the way that silly court affairs cause the convulsions of kingdoms. The interests of favourites are generally the origin of the evils with which the peoples are affected. They not unfrequently make use of their masters to increase their own fortunes and sometimes even to revenge their private quarrels. Richelieu had not blocked Buckingham coming back into France for the sake of watching him sulk, but because English and French interests were surprisingly misaligned by the late 1620s, despite the Anglo French marriage. The declared English mission to restore Frederick V back to the Palatinate was a compelling reason to search for external aid, but the Cardinal was not ready to make war on Spain in 1624, 25, or 26 and he could only be ready when the Huguenots were dealt with. The hesitation was a major cause of the failure to conclude a French alliance, even while the British and French royal houses were intermarried. Taking irony a step further, when Buckingham found the French unwilling, he then moved to inflame the very elements which had prevented Richelieu's complete acceptance of an English alliance in the first place. The wrongheadedness of this policy was on full display, as England made another enemy it could not afford, and King Charles felt powerless to work against the tide of public opinion, which had reached such a fever pitch of anti-Catholic feeling. Thus, the appearance of Buckingham and his fleet outside La Rochelle on the 10th of July 1627 was the result of several factors, but it could mean only one thing for Richelieu. The Huguenot problem having significantly widened with a new enemy on the scene, it was even more urgent that La Rochelle be seized, and these Huguenots crushed. If this French problem continued to drag on into the future, there was nothing preventing other powers from taking advantage and from following the English example of using the Huguenots as a springboard into the vulnerable underbelly of the French realm. In the past, believe it or not, the Rohan brothers had been promised military aid and money from Spain, and Richelieu justifiably feared that the English action was only the beginning. But he need not have worried. Spain was quickly entrapped within the Mantuan affair in North Italy, and in spite of Buckingham's grandiose blandishments and promises, the 2,500 French soldiers held out on the island of Re, while Buckingham exhausted his supplies. By the 30th of August 1627, Buckingham had sent an optimistic ultimatum to the commander of French forces holed up in the fortress of Saint Martin on the island of Re, writing... As I do not wish to subject you to greater hardships, I offer you and your garrison an honourable withdrawal. I should be sorry to employ the extremer measures which I have at my disposal. But his French counterpart was defiant, writing in response to the effect that, The courtesy of your highness is known to the whole world, and as it is guided by clear judgment, those who achieve honourable deeds can above all reckon on your approval, and I know no better deed than to lay down my life in the service of my king. Buckingham's bluff had failed. The surprisingly stiff resistance on this small island in the mouth of La Rochelle's harbour had thwarted him before he even managed to land in support of the actual fortress city. The Huguenots within La Rochelle, initially amazed that the English had indeed showed up, were then aghast when they learned of Buckingham's exit by the end of 1627. With the English absent, it was possible for Richelieu to orchestrate a concentrated blockade of La Rochelle, severing its lifeline to the sea and hastening its surrender. Yet it was an anxious wait for this surrender to come. As the months ticked by from 1627 into 1628, Richelieu was made painfully aware that the siege of La Rochelle was costing France its freedom of action at precisely the wrong time. We're going to continue our narrative of these events in a little while, history friends, but before we do, I wanted to remind you of something very exciting. I have dipped my toe into the lake, or should that be the ocean of historical fiction, and Matchlock and the Embassy, a Thirty Years' War story, is the result of this. It is the first in what I hope will be a very long series, set during the Thirty Years' War, and following the adventures of Matthew Locke, who lands in the Hague in 1622, to find out why his parents were so brutally murdered. In the process, he gets drawn into the developing war there between Frederick and Emperor Ferdinand, and it's a story which really has to be read to be believed. You may have missed this, but I posted on social media that in the month since Matchlock on the Embassy has been released, we've sold over 200 copies, I think it's nearly 250 now, which to me is really fantastic, because I know for a fact that many self-published, independent authors don't achieve nearly this many sales, and many, in fact, don't achieve more than 100. So, really, this is all thanks to your guys' support and enthusiasm. This podcast has been an invaluable platform for launching something like historical fiction set during the Thirty Years' War, which is just obscure enough that people probably won't be actively looking for it, but my hope is that when they find it, or when you find it and start reading it, you will become enmeshed in the story and you will fall in love with Matthew Locke's world. At least, of course, that's my hope. If you want to get this book for yourself, it's super easy to do so. Click on the link in the description below or just search Matchlock in the Embassy in Google and you'll be sure to find it in your favourite online vendors. It's available for the moment in paperback and ebook form, And as things stand right now, I don't really know what to do about the audiobook. Part of me wants to record it myself, but knowing how difficult I find accents to be, and knowing the sheer challenge of a fiction story as opposed to non-fiction which we're doing here, I am hesitating. I might hire someone which would cost a lot more money, but it would definitely be less effort for me. Let me put it this way, if it sells enough, I will produce that audiobook. I'm not sure how many sales I'll need to justify it, but Let's just say I'm keeping an eye out and I do want to do an audiobook. It's just another challenge that I'll have to cross when the time comes. I should add as well, if you want to get Matchlock's series delivered to you without having to pay for it, and if you want to get pretty much all the books that I release into the future in ebook format and audiobooks as well, then supporting this podcast on Patreon is the best way to do that. And you can find that as well by clicking on the link in the description below. Of course, you'll also get access to an hour of podcast content a month on top of our 30 Years' War series. It should be said that we're taking a small break right now because Poland Is Not Yet Lost has run out of steam or that is, I haven't written any new scripts. So stay tuned and we'll have a new series up and running within the new year. I just need to focus on the PhD right now, so I hope you understand about that. But I'll make up for lost time when we're back on track. The support you guys have given me in podcast format and in fiction format has really been fantastic and I really, really appreciate it. I had to pay considerable taxes this year, thanks to your guys' support in getting When Diplomacy Fails out there and my income has risen as a result and I really do appreciate that, since especially with all these fees to pay for for the PhD, it's all going to a good cause. That is the further education of Zach Twomley. So thanks so much. And let's get back to the episode.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands.
1: Many miles to the south of La Rochelle, the Spanish had taken advantage of the French preoccupation with their Huguenot problem by provocatively declaring against the new Duke of Mantua, Charles Gonzaga, also known as the Duke of Nevers. Nevers was well connected to the French monarchy, and he was the preferred French candidate to succeed in this North Italian enclave. He was also the lawful choice, but this didn't matter so much to Spain, seizing an opportunity Olivares acted to reinforce Habsburg influence in the region, and by so doing, accelerated the decline of Spain, dampened the Holy Roman Emperor's triumph against the Danes, and left the door effectively open to the King of Sweden. I have just heard with extreme sorrow the death of His Highness Duke Vincenzo of Mantua. Deeply, though I have respected all my patrons, I particularly had friendly feelings towards His Highness, because I hoped that by His kindness... I might have the capital that provides my pension, but my fate, which has always been fickle rather than happy, has deigned to give me this great mortification. With such language did the Italian composer Claudio Monteverdi reflect upon the death of the Duke of Mantua and Montferrat in late 1627. While Monteverdi was more concerned for his pension, having played in the court of Mantua until 1613 before moving to Venice, a Great mortification was en route which would far outmatch a lost pension for him. War, famine, plague and the loss of a quarter of North Italy's population, terrible though it sounds, was to follow Duke Vincenzo's death as Spain and France competed for influence and power in the region. Duke Vincenzo had been a compromise candidate. He was a former clergyman and scion of the Gonzaga family which had ruled in the two duchies of Mantua and Montferrat since the mid-16th century. The conflict which erupted in 1627 was in fact a continuation of that which had emerged originally 15 years before and which centred on the Gonzaga family's rights of inheritance. Now, I don't want you to be afraid of some background detail, but we do need to provide some information on the nuances of the story if we're going to grasp what motivated the sequel. In 1613, Duke Vincenzo's elder brother Ferdinando had withdrawn from the clergy to rule the Duchies. This was acceptable to the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs as the region would revert to Habsburg control following the extinction of the Gonzaga Line, but the Duke of Savoy was not pleased. The Duke of Savoy was based in the north-west of the Italian peninsula and he embarked on a war in the name of Ferdinando's sister. The Duke of Savoy argued that this sister had a stronger claim to Mantua since she had never disavowed her inheritance and entered the church whereas Ferdinando had. The Duke of Savoy was by no means fussed by the rights of women, let's get that clear. He was much more interested in the fact that this daughter of the late Duke was his Granddaughter, and thanks to the intertwined royal houses of the period, the Duke of Savoy thus stood to inherit Mantua and Montferrat once the Gonzaga family ran out. The war which followed in 1613 lasted for three years, with Spain eventually conceding defeat in the miserable sieges of North Italy. The French mediated a peace in 1616, where the status quo Bellum was agreed to. For the moment, it seemed All were content to kick the can down the road and to allow Ferdinando to inherit the duchies. In 1626 though, Ferdinando died and it seemed possible that war would flare up in the region again. But this was avoided by simply passing Mantua to his younger brother Vincenzo, who, unfortunately as we just said, died a year later on the 26th of December 1627. With the two Gonzaga brothers dead, the Duke of Savoy believed it was time to cash in on his family ties, and he claimed Montferrat, with its strategically vital fortress of Casal, as his inheritance. The Spanish governor of Lombardy had long been watching the Mantuan situation and reported on the death of Ferdinando to Madrid, urging action. He then contacted the Duke of Savoy and successfully merged the interests of Savoy and Spain together. It would certainly be in Spain's interest to occupy Mantua, an eventuality planned for during the First War of 1613-16. to Since the Holy Roman Emperor was the Duke of Mantua's overlord, and since the King of Spain acted in tandem with the Emperor, the argument for occupying Mantua, until further notice, seemed to speak for itself. Yet there was a problem with this plan, and with the schemes of the Duke of Savoy to cleave away Montferrat for himself. You see, while the direct male descendants of the first Dukes of Mantua and Montferrat had died out, another candidate did exist. This was the French-born Charles Gonzaga, the cousin of Duke Vincenzo, whose death in 1612 had sparked the first Mantuan war. I know there's a lot of names floating around, but you should just know that Charles Gonzaga was known under his French title as the Duke of Nevers. We mentioned him a few minutes ago, and he had distinguished himself in wars against the Huguenots, but he'd also tasted misfortune, having led the King's fleet to a defeat in the Battle of Blavet in January 1627. The Duke of Nevers possessed a valid claim on Mantua and Montferrat, but his accession to the duchies would represent a grave setback for Spain. Especially if the French were able to pull the strings of Nevers' new regime behind the scenes. Nevertheless, on the 11th of January 1628, while the French were tightening the noose on La Rochelle, the word from Madrid was that both King Philip IV and Count Olivares were willing to bow to Nevers' superior claim after all. This acceptance of the Duke of Nevers lasted only a few hours, before some important news woke Spain up from its slumber, and in the process doomed North Italy to become a battlefield. By the afternoon of the 11th of January, letters from the governor of Spanish Lombardy revealed that Nevers had worked for several years to secure his succession to Mantua and Montferrat, but that in the process he had committed several grave procedural errors. What happened next set the tone. Rather than communicate these developments and put the issue up for debate, Count Olivares insisted that Nevers' unscrupulous behaviour had rendered his claim, if not void, then certainly dubious. In the meantime, Olivares claimed, Spain would hold on to the duchies, perhaps until the matter was resolved, or perhaps for good if there was no resolution to be found, because Spain was just nice like that. Monferrat, as per the governor of Spanish-Lombardy's insistence, would go to Savoy. Contrary to what some historians have claimed, the Mantuan incident was not just an example of Spanish opportunism. The crisis contained more layers than that. At its heart was the question of legitimate succession. Since Nevers was not of the direct line and was a cousin of the Dukes, it was reasonable to expect Nevers to offer some compensation to any counterclaimants. This was the custom of the day. Unfortunately though, the process of succession in the Mantuan area was confused by the traditional sovereignty which the Holy Roman Emperor was supposed to hold as the Overlord of Mantua. And matters were complicated even further by the acquisition of Montferrat, which was only added to the Duke of Mantua's portfolio in 1533. Indeed, the rulers of Mantua had only been recast as Dukes by Emperor Charles V in 1530. With the tradition of rule less than a century old in Mantua, it was reasonable to anticipate that the extinction of the direct Gonzaga line would sow confusion. As the historian David Parrott appreciated, confusion was akin to the middle name of the Gonzaga's regime in North Italy. He wrote, There was no unified Gonzaga state of Mantua, but a patchwork of lands ruled over by different branches of the Gonzaga family whose competing claims and contentions, traditional rights and overlapping jurisdictions ensured that there could be no clear and unambiguous notion of family sovereignty. There was certainly a main family branch, the Dukes of Mantua and Montferrat, but no clear consensus about the hereditary rights and sovereign status of this branch in relation to the other Gonzaga family lines. Just to complicate things further, I hope you're sitting down, within the Duchy of Mantua there existed seven miniature slices of territory which all belonged to distant Gonzaga branches and while the fortress city of Mantua was owned by the senior member of the dynasty, the other lesser relatives didn't sit by and they actively involved themselves in European politics wherever they could. The presence of so many pieces of inheritance and family claims guaranteed that disputes among the House of Gonzaga over who owned what were inevitable. These had the potential to flare up into war, particularly because the Spanish and French were so involved in the region, and thus the overlordship of the Emperor was essential for keeping everyone in line and maintaining peace in the region. A long history of appeals to the Holy Roman Emperor had been established by the Gonzaga family before Count Olivares decided to act in the Emperor's name. Olivares was acting with history on his side, but it was the bluntness of his instruments and the wrong-headedness of his approach that caused problems, rather than the inherent illegality of his actions. This division of the duke's lands is reflected again in the curious joining of Mantua and Montferrat together. Mantua was sandwiched between several different Italian states in the inner centre of North Italy. Venice was to the east, the Duchy of Parma and Medina to the south and Milan to the west. On the other hand, Montferrat was located on the other side of Milan's borders and was itself sandwiched between the Duchy of Milan and the Duchy of Savoy, with Genoa to the south. Over the years, Savoy had repeatedly contested the Duke of Mantua's right to hold Montferrat, and the Savoyar ducal house had even married into the Gonzaga family in an attempt to solve the dispute, muddying the waters still further. Mantua and Montferrat were disconnected by land and had never been naturally joined together as one political unit, nor could they be so long as Milan, the centre of Spanish influence in Lombardy, existed between them. Mantua and Montferrat in this case were no different really to the patchwork of states present in the Holy Roman Empire, indeed they're kind of reminiscent of the Palatinate with Frederick's lower and upper Palatinate states being so far apart, and the lineage was no less confusing for those involved either. In the event, though, the succession disputes over Mantua and Montferrat matter less in their essence than what this dispute moved either side to do, so don't worry if you, like most mortal beings, can't keep up with all of this. In Olivares' mind, the dispute was sufficient to send in soldiers and take Casal, which was the impregnable capital of Montferrat, at least until the Emperor's requests were satisfied. Because the Duke of Nevers, the French candidate, wanted to retain both duchies in their entirety, though, he resisted Olivares' requests. On the 15th of January 1628, having consulted the theologians who provided the rubber stamp for Olivares' plan, the King of Spain was set on a collision course with both Nevers and with France. The conflict that followed was not one which either France or Spain could afford. Yet in both cases, For Richelieu and for Olivares, reputation and honour and power and influence were all on the line nonetheless. Spain was standing up for the emperor's sovereign rights over the duchies, which had to be respected. France was standing up for the policy, which prevented any more Italian territory coming into Spanish hands. It is also worth considering a key fact which must have factored into Olivares' calculations. In January 1628... With France occupied in its siege of La Rochelle, there seemed no time like the present. An invasion of the two duchies would answer the question of Nevers' inheritance before Richelieu had a chance to formulate a response or spin any webs. The key takeaway from this key fact, though, is that Olivares miscalculated how much longer and how completely the French were paralysed with the Huguenots. By October 1628, La Rochelle fell to Louis, and the following year, in June 1629, a conclusive peace treaty shattered the political pretensions of the Huguenots. Pockets of Huguenot resistance remained, but the Great Showdown had been survived, in spite of foreign interference, and now external distractions. It should also be underlined just how interconnected the two campaigns were. The Duke of Nevers arrived in Mantua on the 17th of January 1628, having received the blessing of his distant relative, the King of France, to succeed to the duchies. Richelieu knew that France couldn't spare the soldiers for a campaign to protect Nevers, but he also appreciated that support for Nevers couldn't be withdrawn without a significant loss of French honour. Shortly after he had arrived in Mantua, Nevers had sent a request for recognition by Emperor Ferdinand, who was at that point busy enough with the creation of a Baltic design and the ultimate crushing of Denmark. Around the same time, as we saw, King Philip's advisers approved Olivares' scheme to contest the succession by force with the help of Savoy, who himself wanted Montferrat. Indeed, it's relatively easy to make a case for the strategic interests of the King of France, the King of Spain, and the Emperor in the region. Olivares had already decided on the course of action when he learned that Nevers had refused the Emperor's request to hand over as compensation. Recall, this request from the Emperor for compensation wasn't abnormal given the indirect line of succession which Nevers' claim was sourced from. If the Duke of Nevers had agreed to relinquish the Montferrat Appendage, which was awkwardly separate from Mantua anyway, it's possible that the Emperor and King Philip would have ironed out the outstanding issues and there would have been no need to resort to war. With the French occupied and the Spanish buckling under the reinvigorated Dutch, it could be argued that without much difficulty, neither side was in a position to go to war. However, just as the confused pattern of inheritance enabled the Emperor to request compensation, it also provided the Duke of Nevers with the vague justification to resist all claims to partition his territories. The kaleidoscope of sovereignty disputes, stately opportunism and dynastic confusion produced an uncertain platform from which to launch the next phase of the habsburg bourbon rivalry. In spite of the desires of both sides and the restrictions applied by common sense, though, standing down from Mantua was impossible. Unfortunately, resorting to force in Mantua didn't produce a satisfactory decision for either side. Instead, it created a kind of vortex into which all resources and manpower, not to mention any sense of an overall strategic plan, were to be sucked in. In the next episode, we conclude the different threads of our story by bringing the different elements together. La Rochelle, Mantua, the Siege of Stralsund, Wallenstein's campaigns, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Dutch War, all of these aspects of the Thirty Years' War are really important in themselves, but it's how they overlap that makes the narrative so interesting. Hope you'll join me for that, history friends. But until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 44 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting and for reading Matchlock and I'll be seeing you all soon